My name is Michael, and I'm one of the, the pastors here. It's good to be with y'all this morning. Uh, and uh, I am not the head pastor here, or the rector, that is Alex, as y'all probably know. And one of the reasons why he is not preaching this morning is because his youngest daughter, the last of his children to get married, was married yesterday. And Alex is a wise man, he's a clever man, so he might say he chose this date because it was when the venue was available or it was the best for his family's schedule, but I suspect, I suspect he also chose this date because he knew it was going to be Trinity Sunday, and he didn't want to preach on the Trinity because as we all know, the, the Trinity is kind of complex, this idea that God is three and one and one and three. And so on, on Trinity Sunday, each year we have a moment to reflect on the Trinity. And that shouldn't be a challenging thing, because the Trinity gets at the very heart of who God is. And so every week we should be talking about who God is, which must touch on how God is triune. But if we're honest and we think about God being triune or God being three in one, it's kind of complicated because for most of us it seems to defy the rules of logic. And so if you're a Christian this morning or if you're trying to figure out things of faith, maybe that's you. You hear the Trinity and you think, that just does not make sense and I kind of have an issue with that. So that may be you this morning, but there's another, I would say, actually a deeper issue, a deeper problem that lots of us have when we think about the Trinity. And that is it might to us seem like a dry, dead doctrine instead of something that makes our soul sing. And that is a much deeper problem than not being able to understand it, right? Because if the gospel is good news and God is the author of this good news and God at his heart is triune, shouldn't the Trinity also be good news? Shouldn't this be also something that provides us with deep in, in encouragement. But if you're like me, sometimes it might just seem like an abstraction and we don't know how it relates to our life. So those are the two big questions that we have before us today. One, how can we believe that the Trinity is true? How can we believe it to be true? And two, how can we behold it to be beautiful? And in response to those questions, I I have put forward for us this morning kind of a classic saying on the Trinity. And the idea of this is the Trinity is not a maxim to be explained, but a mystery to be experienced. The Trinity is not a maxim to be explained, but a mystery to be experienced. So what do we mean by that first part, that the Trinity is not a maxim to be, uh, to be explained? Uh, well, we know that it's hard to explain the Trinity. It gets confusing super quickly, and we uh, see the evidence of that in our gospel to today, at least the elements of, of the Trinity. We see Jesus, the Son, is talking about God the Father and making reference to the Spirit. So we see these three kind of persons that all exist, and Paul talks to that as well in the epistle that we read this morning too. He talks about 
being in Christ. He talks about the work of the Spirit, and he talks about us crying, Father. So again, we see these kind of three elements of, of the Trinity. If you're a, a theologian, don't be upset by me calling that an element. It's just a figure of speech. Uh, but it gets to this idea that the early church fathers fought hard to try and establish, which is that these three persons are all God. That the Son is God, the Father is God, and the Spirit is God. But God is not the Son, and the Son is not God. And the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not, sorry. God is not the, the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. The Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Son, etc., etc. You get the idea. But the issue is that if we're honest, oftentimes we don't get the idea because it seems to violate our rules of logic. It goes against the transitive property. The idea that if A equals B and B equals C, then A must equal C. But the Trinity says that's not so. So it's hard for us to wrap our minds around. Put another way, in the Trinity, one plus one plus one equals one. And this makes it really hard to understand. And if, if I took classes on the Trinity in, in, in seminary and they were the most confusing books I read in my entire life. And if you would ever like to read a book that gets into this in a way that's easy to understand and in a way that actually presents the Trinity as beautiful, I would recommend a book to you called The Lighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. But as we think about this one plus one plus one e equals one, it's hard for us to understand, and so oftentimes we try to have an analogy to try and explain it. But what the theologians will all say is these analogies at some point break down into something that becomes heretical. And so well established is in this in theological circles is that someone made a video that you can go watch on YouTube if you Google St. Patrick bad analogies. It's very funny. Um, and so the Trinity is something that can't be explained because we can't explain it. So how can that be? I can't explain the Trinity, but I can explain that we can't explain the Trinity, if that makes sense. So if something is easy, we might say, well, it's not rocket science. And we say that because we know that rocket science is super complex and complicated. It's not easy to understand. And so if we know that rocket science is so hard to grasp, how much more ought to be the case that the God who created the universe, the cosmos, the universal constants that underlie the science of rocket science, how much more would he be complicated and complex and hard for us to understand? It would make sense that we can't entirely make sense of God and, and the Trinity. And this is something that a Catholic theologian named Herbert McCabe put very well using a similar analogy of science. He said, there is nothing especially odd or irrational about God or the doctrine of the Trinity. It only seems shocking to those who expect the study of God to be easy and obvious, a less demanding discipline than say, the study of nuclear physics. And so we shouldn't expect the Trinity to be easily understood because if other things in the world are so complex, why should the God who made the world not also be complex? And so that's the first part, why the Trinity is a maxim that we can't explain or a maxim that should not be explained. Instead, we 
I should say that it's a mystery to be experienced. But the way, the reason why we even know that the Trinity exists in the, in the first place uh, is something that we can continue with this metaphor of science. So if we say God is so incomprehensible that we can't understand him, it would be easy to say, well, then how do we know he's two, three, and one? Or how do we know he's one and, and three? And the, the analogy of science can continue to help us with that. So scientists revise their theories when they're exposed to new data that their old theories don't make sense of. And that is exactly what happened with Jesus. God entered into our world, and in doing so, he rocked our world. Colossians says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. It says that Jesus is our definitive source to knowing who God is. So to continue with the science idea, Christ's life gave us data about what God is like. Data that we never had access to before. And so we had to revise our understanding about who God was to make more sense of it. And that's why we see Nicodemus in our gospel passage, the teacher of Israel. If anyone knows his scripture and his theology, it's going to be him. And yet he's at a loss to understand what Jesus is talking about in terms of what the Son and the Father and Spirit are doing because Jesus is revealing this new data about who God is that doesn't fit into his categories. And in a way, that's also what we see in our psalm today. We read how in the psalm, God is king over all. The waves rebel against him in chaos, but he subdues the waves. And uh, Jews before the time of Jesus would have read that and thought, surely this is talking about God, the creator of all, the one God. And yet we see Jesus, who talks about God the Father, as if he's not exactly the same as him the Son. And we see Jesus announcing the kingdom of God, demonstrating that he is king and subduing the waves, calming the storm, walking on the waves to show that he is king. And so even that psalm itself, as we look at the life of Jesus, we see that God cannot just be one. God is three in one, as we see in Jesus, but it's hard for us to understand. And that's why the Trinity Sunday falls when it does, because we look back on the events of the liturgical year preceding us. We look back on Advent when we meditate on how God the Father promised a redeemer to the Son to dwell with us. We look back on the events of Christmas and Easter when we meditate on the life, death, and resurrection of that redeemer who dwelled with us. And we meditate on Pentecost when the helper sent by the Father and Son comes to dwell with us. So when we look back on the new data that we've seen in the person of Christ, the image of the invisible God, and see how God is Father, Son, and Spirit, we can understand that, okay, maybe the Trinity is a thing, but we still don't understand how the logic works out because we can't understand the Trinity. It's not a maxim to be explained. Instead, it's a mystery to be experienced. So Karl Barth, who was a German theologian in the 20th century, he said this about the Trinity. He said, the triunity of God is the secret to his beauty. If we deny this, we at once have a God without radiance and without joy and without humor, a God without beauty. Karl Barth says that the Trinity is the secret to God's beauty. But 
for lots of us, perhaps, when we think of the tr Trinity, we think of the Trinity as being more boring than beautiful. We don't think of the Trinity as being good news. So that leaves the question, how do we experience this mystery? How do we experience the mystery of the Trinity in a way that is good news for our souls? And to explore that, I want us to look at the last few verses of the Romans passage that we looked at, uh, verses 14 to 17 in Romans chapter 8. And this is just one way in which we can experience the beauty of the Trinity. Every part of the Christian life is touched by the Trinity, but this is how we see it in one way. So since the fifth chapter of Romans, Paul has been sussing out exactly what the good news of the gospel means for, for us as Christians. And in chapter eight, he arrives at how the gospel can provide people assurance in all circumstances. And in these four verses that we're about to look at, he develops that specifically through the idea of adoption, of becoming children of God. In fact, in these four verses, in the English, we see f uh, words relating to the idea of family 10 times. We can read in the first two verses some of these words. In verses 14 and 15, he says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Paul says the Spirit makes us sons, effectively sealing our adoption as God's children. As a quick aside, Paul uses the word sons not to indicate that women can't inherit this promise, but because in the Roman day, sons would have had different and distinct more rights than daughters would have. So Paul uses the word sons here, not to say this promise is not available to males and females, but to emphasize that in fact all of us receive these additional rights as sons. There's not a distinction here based upon being a son or a, being a son or a daughter. We all receive the rights of sons, whether we're uh, male or female. But what are those rights that we receive? What are we adopted into? We are adopted into the inner life of God. In John 17, Jesus says that the Father loved him from before the foundation of the world. Before anything else existed, love did, because God existed. God the Father was loving God the Son, and the Father delighted to pour his spirit out on the Son and love him. And the Son received this love and returned it to the glory of the Father. And the Spirit was constantly glorifying and giving love to both the Father and to the Son. God and his eternal being, even before anything else was made, was caught up in this eternal dance of love. And that can't be true if God is not triune. If God is just one, he couldn't have been loving anything before the world was made. But because God is three in one, God is love, and love is at the heart of the universe. So much so that because God is always looking out to someone else, the Father was looking to the Son, the Son to the Father, and the Spirit to both of them, because God was loving and outward facing, it was natural for him to create the universe. Not because God had to, 
he already had perfect love because he wanted to invite others into this dance of love that he experienced as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each week in the Eucharist, we say that God has made us for himself. And this is what we mean by that, that we were made to experience this love of God, to be drawn into this loving dance of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that has been going on since before the beginning of time. This perfect love is what we've been adopted into. But the fact that we've been adopted into it suggests that we were outside of it. It suggests that we had been estranged, that something went wrong. And this is what Paul details in the first three chapters of Romans. He says that we exchange partaking in this perfect, eternal communion with God and decided to look for the needs of our heart elsewhere. And that is exactly what Adam and Eve did when they thought they needed something over and above walking with God and the perfect relationship of love in the garden. And that's what we all do when we look for love in the wrong places. And so as a result of us looking elsewhere, though God is still perfectly love in and of himself, by turning away from him and his love, we no longer receive his love in the same way. Indeed, before this section of Romans, Paul has been referring to humanity not with the language of sons or daughters or children or family, but with language like enemies and fools and condemned. To put it lightly, we were left on the outside looking in, unable to return to what we had willingly left. We had been cut off from the love behind the universe. But because God is triune, because God is three in one, always looking to give love outside of himself, always looking outward, he loved us even when we were on the outside. He loved us when we were as other as we could possibly be. And because we could not re-enter into this inner life of love, because we could not re-enter into this perfect dance of Father, Son, and Spirit, Jesus entered our life of brokenness, our life of misplaced love, our life of despair. Though he was God, he became part of our human family that we might become members of the household of God. And he took on the separation that we deserved so that we could know union with God. And if this is where the Trinity starts to really get good, if we truly have been grafted through Jesus into the family of God through this adoption that Paul is talking about, it might seem too good to be true sometimes. You might think surely God has made a mistake. He can't actually love me. Doesn't he know who I really am or the things that I've done? Or maybe you might think other people have treated me so poorly in my whole life, I don't deserve love. I don't think I deserve this love that God has on offer. And even after we've trusted in Jesus and been made sons and daughters of God, it's easy for us to feel like this sometimes. And so what does God do? We read about it in verse 16. He gives us the gift of his spirit, 
which dwells inside of us and testifies to the fact that we are children of God. So if you have a hard time believing that you are in fact a beloved son or daughter of God, ask your heavenly father to pour out his fatherly love into your heart through his Holy Spirit. And in verse 15, we see what effect that creates in us. It makes our hearts cry, Abba, Father. Paul makes a really specific word choice there. He could have just said Father, but no, he says Abba, Father. Why does he say Abba? He says Abba because that was the language that Jesus used to address the Father in his most intimate moments of prayer with God. When he was praying in the garden before his crucifixion, he cried out to God, Abba, Father. And because of the Holy Spirit that testifies to our hearts that we are in fact his children, we can join with him in that cry. We can have that same kind of access and relationship with God that Jesus has. In our reading from Exodus, Moses had to stay far away. But because of the work of the Son and the Spirit in our hearts, we can draw confidently before the throne of grace, as Hebrews says. We can have the same view and relationship with God that the Son has. Here's an example of what that looks like and how that's important. So David and Caitlin are my brother and sister-in-law, and Caitlin's parents live very close to them. And when I stayed with David and Caitlin, I got to get to know them some, and they would have us over for dinner. And I remember one time I went over for dinner with them, and their names are Roger and Barbara. And at this point, I had heard about them a lot more than I had actually spent time with them. So I had heard how Caitlin would refer to her mom and dad as Babs and Raj. And because I'm a pastor of sorts, when they had me over, they asked me to bless the meal. And as part of that blessing, I thanked God for Raj and Babs' hospitality. And they chuckled. Caitlin and her sisters and Roger and Barbara laughed because I didn't have the intimacy that Caitlin does to call them that. I didn't have that right. I hadn't yet built that up yet. But because of the work of the Holy Spirit being poured out into our hearts, we can refer to the Father as Abba. We can call God Father, and God doesn't look at us and laugh. He doesn't chuckle. He's eager to hear our prayers because of the work of the Son and the Spirit. In fact, God does not look down and laugh at us when we pray to him and call him Father. He does something much more beautiful than that. He sees us as his children. So there's a meme on the internet that goes something like this. It says, find someone who looks at you the way this person or thing looks at that person or thing. One iteration of this is a picture of a cute dog who's looking longingly at a plate of meat waiting to be barbecued. You can probably imagine that in in your head. And in this meme, it says, find someone who looks at you the way Roger the dog looks at barbecue. Well, here's the thing. If we are in Christ, if through the work of the Son we've been grafted into this uh, eternal dance of love, 
and if the Spirit testifies to our hearts to help us know in our bones that we are in fact his children, his sons and daughters, then when God sees us, he sees us in the same way he sees Jesus. He looks at us in the same way the Father looks at the Son. So if you are ever like, man, I don't know if God can actually love me. Because of the Trinity, we see how the Father has always loved the Son. And so we have found someone who looks at us the way that the God, the Father looks at God the Son. God looks, us, God looks at us that way. The Bishop of New England, he captures it like this. He draws three circles in a, in a, a triangle and, and labels them Father, Son, and Spirit and has bi-directional arrows of love that connect each one. And then he adds a, a label to this uh, circle that says Son and he says, you are here. In the mystery of the Trinity, we experience the eternal love that the Father, Son, and Spirit have always had for one another. And this wonder of adoption is one way in which we can experience the mystery of the Trinity. It's not the only way, of course, but it's what we have before us in our passage in, in Romans. And when we see how the Trinity works out like that, making us sons and daughters of God, I hope that we can see that the Trinity is not a dead or dry doctrine, but a sucker for sin-sick souls like you and me. Sure, we will always struggle to understand the logic of it, but my prayer for us today is that deep in our bones we can experience the love of the Father as we are in Christ through the Spirit, which makes our hearts cry out to God. And as we grow in grasping this idea, this experience of the Trinity and adoption, we'll find that we will start to show some of the family resemblance. We'll become less turned inward on ourselves and become more like our Heavenly Father, turned outwards, turned outwards to others in love. So please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you that you are three in one and one in three. Please pour out your love through your spirit into our hearts that the cry of our hearts to you may be Abba Father and that may we see how you see us just as you see your son because of the work of you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus, we ask this in your name. Amen.